we turn now to John, John's letter of John in the first letter in chapter 4. Could I explain, I've had a bit of laryngitis during the week, so my voice is recovering, so please do excuse any sputtering or coughing while I'm getting going. And I've had to be very restrained on the singing so far tonight as well, which is a very uncomfortable thing to do, really. <laughs> so here we have John writing in the fourth chapter of his first epistle. I think at this point, as we together look at God's word in the first letter of John, it's right to take a helicopter view of where we are with this epistle. Remind ourselves of why it was written and what John was very concerned about. And we know this, that it was written when John was probably, we believe, a very old man in his 90s. And he was contending against error creeping into the church from people who were called Gnostics. They, they claimed to have a higher knowledge. They placed man's knowledge and revelation above the Holy Writ. They denied that Jesus Christ had come into the flesh and they became a great nuisance in the church. And we believe that John was kept alive by God at the right time. And he, as the last surviving apostle, might testify against this grievous error that was beset in the church of God. And in epistle, John's got two real deep concerns. And one springs from the other. Above all, first of all, his concern with truth. And because of establishing truth, he knows we'll find truth in the love of God, in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Is it wrong if we thought this epistle is just about love? It is, and great it is indeed. But it is a love that springs from God's truth in Jesus Christ. And you know, John so often writes an epistle here. He uses the words, we know. He doesn't say we think. It might be. It could be this, it could be that. John says, we know these things. And that today we might be a church once more got back to the saying, we know are the things of God. And we're not ashamed to proclaim them. We're not meant to give vague and ambiguities of the word in which we live. We bring the saving news of Jesus Christ in God's eternal word. And John knew that false teaching then led to, to wrong behaviour. But right behaviour is a touchstone of, of true faith. And here we've got John standing for truth. He chastens those at some points whom he calls his little children. And John, while preaching the word of love, nevertheless has to say... These Gnostics are liars. For example, you know, John Wright wrote earlier that if we, are, if we claim we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves because the Gnostics claimed they had no sin. And therefore, John was very concerned about the moral implications of those false teachings. He knew that true light leads to true love. And in John's day, the error was this. People were trying to accommodate the church to contemporary culture. We've got here, you know, such wonderful Trinitarian theology. The danger of the church days, you know, sometimes we drift into modalism, what's called modalism, failing to recognise that there are three persons. And here we've got God, Father and Holy Spirit working together. And in the context of love, that's so important because... 
what is a trinity. It's one God, but three persons. And three persons loving themselves so much that we have one God. In the letter, you know, it's got really two great focal points. One is that God is light and that God is love. That, you know, the right belief gives the right behaviour. Doctrine gives the right experience. Mind gives the right heart. Word gives a spirit. Truth gives love. And as you think today, especially about walking in fearless love in the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that from John's epistle here we need to build the foundations. And I believe in these parts of God's word we'll look at tonight, in these first 16 verses of chapter 4, that first of all we're told to walk in fearless love, firstly by testing the spirits, realising how much God loves us, and then walking in assurance, in fearless love. Now, you see, what, why is this epistle so relevant today? Because we live in an age where, again, the faith is under attack, even within what appears to be part of the visible church itself. Writing hundreds of years ago, John Calvin wrote these words, For it is a case perpetually with the gospel that Satan attempts to pollute and corrupt its purity by variety of errors. Let, therefore, this fact remain fixed in our minds that from the time the gospel began to be preached, false prophets immediately appeared, and this fact will fortify us against such offences. We're living in an age where so often the gospel is under attack, where the word of God is denied, and the Gnostics today are just the same as they were before. They may have a different coat of paint, but essentially they are the same as the Gnostics of old. Those who deny the virgin birth of Christ are Gnostics. Those who deny it, he died on the cross are Gnostics. Those who deny his resurrection from the dead. These are all again modern day Gnostic behaviour. And how we need discernment, first of all, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see, in John's epistle here, this first epistle of John, in the third chapter, at our reading last week, the very last verse brings in the Holy Spirit for the first time in this epistle. A very important point. Where John says, and we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave to us. And so the Spirit's mentioned for the very first time as a ground of our assurance. You know, Paul writes Romans 8, 15-17, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also 
may share his glory. And the first thing John does here in this chapter 4 is to say, we must test the spirits. Now, in our churches today, there is a, there is a, a group of people who are called secessionists. They believe that the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased with the apostles and are not available today. But here especially, for those of that inclination, there is a very great difficulty. Because if we haven't got that gift of discernment, for example, we're told about in 1 Corinthians, then how can we test the spirits? Discernment is a gift of God's Holy Spirit to be used for his people. And that today, you know, we might, we would be in a far better place as a church of God if we practice more the gift of discernment. Things are done in the name of the church are not of the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of testing the spirits. Testing whether all that we do is genuinely of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Is it work of the flesh or even something even more sinister? Now, I remember a friend at university telling me how he came from one particular brethren church where the idea was whenever they gathered around the Lord's table, no one was appointed to actually preside. The idea was that you all sat round and by the Spirit, someone got up and did it. But actually, in reality, it was all agreed in advance. If someone had got up or announced, it would cause great chaos probably. See, look at all we do in the light of God's Holy Spirit. Discern by the Spirit the things of God, examine everything we do. You've had a great time of worship tonight, great, great songs indeed. But you know, we need often, as we worship God, to think, ask ourselves, are the songs we sing in glorifying God? Are they pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ? Could they be sung by anybody, any religion in the world? You know, could a Muslim, a Hindu, a Sikh, could they sing exactly the same words? And I suggest if they could, then by discernment, as a people of God, we shouldn't be singing it. But here, how do we genuinely discern by the Holy Spirit and test the spirits? You know, first of all, we do it by what do people say today? Is it spin? Is it error? You know, Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22. You may say to yourselves, how do we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or comes true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptively and will not be, do not be alarmed. Paul writes, in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Judge them by what they say. Does it contradict the word of God. And you see, being biblical means discerning error and being negative about error. See, verse 2. 
This is how you can recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. That the spirit of the Antichrist will not acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh. Jesus coming in the flesh declares Satan's doom. So the writer of Hebrews says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of sin of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all the lies were held in slavery by their fear of death. For it is sure not by angel he helps, but to Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And as Luther puts it, but for us fights a proper man whom God himself has given. Ask ye who is the same, Christ Jesus is his name, the Lord Saboa's son, he and no other one shall conquer in the battle. Our four-type Adam in the flesh fell in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the second Adam, the only second Adam, the last Adam, who took our human nature upon himself, died on the cross. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he died on the cross for our redemption. That Jesus came in the flesh is Satan's doom. We discern the spirits by how they live. You see, in, look what John does here. In verse 4, he uses the word you. In verse 5, he uses the word they. In verse 6, he uses the word we. He distinguishes very clearly between the children of God and those of the Antichrist and how we need today to distinguish between the spirit of the age and the spirit of the living God. Now, in the third chapter of John, John begins by saying this, sorry, in this epistle, see what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we are called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. We've overcome because we proclaim God's word and we conquer in the name of Jesus. And John says in verse 4, But you, dear children, are from God and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That he says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. 
But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. We've got the victory because we're tied to Jesus. The false teachers are tied to the world. The world's always talking about a new world order, a new way of doing things that tries to reduce the Lordship of Jesus Christ to mere examples. The spirit of falsehood is relative and deceitful. And you know, a fear of testing the spirits is never driven by the living God or by the spirit of God. It is only the false spirits who make us fear testing the spirits for how I must do so. In the second part, you know, John, in, the, in verses 7 onwards, verse 7 to 12, he then asks us, well, how much are we loved? And therefore, why we should love. In the seventh verse, we're asked to love one another. Then, gloriously, John tells us why and how we can love one another. And then finally, in verse 11 to 12, he again implores us that we love one another. And you see, we're invited to love one another, to walk in fearless love, and not be afraid of loving one another, because God, the creator of the universe, cares for us individually, one by one. And, you know, God is not, ju- it's just not just that God loves. It's that God is love. That's his very glorious nature. And God is never afraid. God is never threatened. He will take away any fearlessness in us. And the love of God wants us to pray for one another. The love of God calls us to pray for our own enemies. And how can we do this? Because John says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Oh, at the cross, God's love, God's mercy, you know, meets so wonderfully, supremely, and we are restored. It's a mystery in a way. The hymn puts it, stronger his love than death and hell. Its riches are unsearchable, the firstborn sons of light, desire in vain its depths to see. They cannot reach the mystery, the length and breadth and height. And the blood of Jesus Christ is a basis for our ever wanting to love God. And as Paul says in Philippians, it's chapter 2 and verse 7, he emptied himself and became a servant. Or as a hymn puts it, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race.
and we see God's love that we're called to show in how we love one another, how we love the world outside. And you see, so often we make the mistake of trying to define the love of God in the way that we define love. But the love, we define love instead, we should do, as what love means to God himself. Our motivation to love other people is the love of God. It sets us free. That's why John emphasises love so much. Oh, we have the lovely words here in, in, in the Bible here. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Dear friends, since God so loved... In other words, John takes us right back to everything looked at so far and says, because of all this, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Spurgeon put it a lovely way when he said, our love to one another is simply God's love to us, flowing into us and flowing out again. Just picture that way. You know, God's love shed abroad in our hearts and because the love of God is in our hearts, it can go out to other people because it comes from God alone in the first place. And Francis Schaeffer said, the supreme apologetic is love. But you see, how often, you know, we want people to change so that we can love them. Or people feel they've got to be attractive to be loved. And in God's economy, you know, don't expect the person you can't love to change on their own. And love means accepting the person that God puts right under our nose, even if they get right up our nose in human terms. Our love reflects God. And in walking in fearless love, we're called upon to take initiative. And we ask the question, but how can we love a person who is not lovable and does not love us? But God did that. And because he loved us when we did not love him, because he loved the unlovable, so by God's grace in Jesus Christ we can go out and love one another. And we perhaps think sometimes when we can't forgive, remember how much it cost Jesus to forgive us. And so, that section, remember, we love because he loved us. We can love one another because of how God loved us. And therefore, in the closing verses, 13 to 16, we can walk in assurance of God's love, walk in fearless love.
And really, in the, in the last few verses, 13 to 16, what the Bible is saying here is that again and again, we live in God and he in us. You see, John keeps repeating things. You know, as we look at this series on 1 John, somebody may have thought, I hope you have by now, hang on, I've heard this somewhere before. And it's right. They say about John, if you miss it the first time round, don't worry, you'll get it the next time round. And John keeps repeating things. And why? Because they're so important. I remember as a young preacher, one church I went to, where the senior steward there took great pride in doing the church announcements. And he kind of, he'd repeat all the various church things on. He'd do it again. He'd do it again and keep saying at the end, now you won't forget that, will you? Because he was so passionate in a way. I mean, personally, I, I agree with Martin Jones that notices are um, torturous to the mind and words from the soul, but he, he meant well. But how much more is John here? How more nobly is he actually reminding us about truth and love in this glorious epistle? He tells us this, in verse 13, we've got the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And in that glorious resurrection account in Luke 24, the, the story about Jesus meeting those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, later on, we're told, their minds were open, they saw him. We're told he opened their minds, they understood the scriptures, they were regenerate. They were Christians. They were a church. But he said, end of Luke 24, wait from the power that comes from on high. They had to wait until they received the power of God's Holy Spirit in their lives. And in just the same way today, God's Holy Spirit is with us. And we need to drink from that well. Remember the book of Genesis. Isaac is in desperate short of water. In the end, what he does is, he unstops the wells his father Abraham had dug that the Philistines are filled with rubbish. He unstops the wells that he might find water. And how more and more we need to unstop the wells and drink more and more of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. Secondly, in verse 14, we've got the apostolic testimony. You see, what John says is this. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. We've got there the apostolic testimony. John, the last surviving apostle, he's saying to us here, I was there. I saw these things. You may believe them because I was there. In the same way we find Peter. In, in 2 Peter writing... For, uh, 1 and verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's not like here John saying to us, well, I met a man in a in shop in Jerusalem who met a man whose grandfather met Paul who says that Jesus did this. We don't have this complicated long chain, the direct apostolic testimony. And as Peter is saying 
We did not bring you cleverly invented myths and fables. So John is saying here that he was there. He was there on a mount of transfiguration. Everything is telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely true. Thirdly, we're told here in verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Acknowledging personally that Jesus is God's only Son in our lives, we then know that that we are truly in God because God is living in us. We may walk in fearless love because God is living in us. And finally, in verse 16, we, we are told this, and we know and we rely on the love God has for us. Again, John's repeating himself, but absolutely right to do so. We can rely on the love of God. We can live in him. We can rely more and more of him. Because you see, we're married to him. We are the bride of Christ. I mean, gentlemen, please, this is not a time for particular correctness in the, in the world of things. Men, we ladies, we are all together the bride of Christ. Just as everyone are the sons of God because their identity is in the Son of God. And our identity is being the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ because we are in him and he in, in us. And so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. By that, we may truly walk in fearless love. Love one another. Love the outsider. And as William Carey said, expect great things from God and do think great things for God. Shall we pray together? Father, we just thank you now for your word once more. And we pray that by the anointing of your Holy Spirit, that your word may do its work in all of our lives, in all of our hearts, for our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.